0: Last week, we read pretty much the entire like, account of Jesus's crucifixion and death. And now this week, we want to just focus in on another section of that and kind of draw out um, some, some meaning and some application for us. And so we'll just be looking at, starting in verse 23. So John 19, um, verse number 23, it's page 905, I believe, on your um, pew Bibles if you're using that. <clears throat> and then we'll be looking at um, 23 through 30. John writes for us, it says, when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts. One part for each soldier also is tunic, but the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, they divided my garments among them and my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold, your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scriptures, I thirst. A jar of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to, the, to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Let's pray. Jesus, may we see your finished work on the cross as complete for us. May we see the beauty of that. May we understand all of the implications of that. May that empower us to live our lives differently. May that be the most clarifying truth for us. Your finished work on the cross May it transform us even today, Lord. It's in Your name that we pray. Amen. Thank you. You could be seated. Here's kind of where we're uh, where we're going today. Is uh, the the kind of the main point of the of the sermon is this that the real life problems that real life problems find they find their solution in the finished work of Jesus. So real life problems, uh, and like some real life problems, not all real life problems. Not the problem if you go to start your uh, the old Chevy tomorrow morning, and she goes, does this number, like it's probably not going to solve that, right? It may or may not solve like what school you want to uh, attend for our college students. It may not solve like how do I get ready for the mathematics exam that's up ahead. It may not solve all of your problems, but there are real life problems that find their solution in the finished work of Jesus. What kind of real life problems are we talking about? Well, this, like we're talking about guilt and shame and condemnation and hopelessness and de- and feeling defeated all the time and feeling abandoned all the time, perpetual frustration, those sorts of real life problems that every one of us deal with, they find their solution in Jesus they find the remedy in the cross of Christ that is a symbol of Jesus's finished atoning work. Now, that's where we're going to head, but let's get there. So, let's look at the text. A couple of things we want to draw out of the text. The first thing is this that in Jesus we find a, a no ordinary man, right? Like certainly if you've been tracking with us for any time through the Gospel of John, you've come to that conclusion that Jesus is extraordinary. He's non-ordinary. He's not much like you and I. There are parts of him that are like us, but then there are so much of him that is so extraordinary. And what makes Jesus extraordinary is the truth that in Jesus, there are two natures, that you and I, we have but one nature. That nature is the nature of man, the nature of being human. We are human, fully human. That's how we've been made by God in his image, but we are fully human. But in Jesus, Jesus is both fully human, fully man, a full human being, and he is God. Like, I don't know about any of you in here with your Messiah complexes, but here's maybe news for you. You're not God. Only Jesus was God in the flesh, Who's come to live, uh, to come to live among us, dual natures, fully God, fully man. And what we see John doing in his gospel is John is kind of walking the tightrope of, of, of showing us that Jesus is in fact fully man and fully God. But throughout the ages, ever since uh Jesus' time on this earth, that there have been false teachers and skeptics and unbelievers who have come uh, who have risen up and they've attacked one or two of Jesus's deity. But there are ages or, or times, periods of time when the, when the false teachers of the age will attack either Jesus's humanity or they may attack Jesus's deity. Like for example, when John uh, the, the Beloved, that's where he gets his name, John the Beloved, the writer of this gospel account, when John is writing this, there's a group of people around called the Gnostics. It's spelled G-N-O-S-T-I-C-S. The G is silent like the K and fish. That's one of my grandfather's jokes. I don't, God. Sometimes I watch these preachers and like, they they tell less, far less funny jokes and get like, the people just laugh. Maybe they got a laugh track. Maybe we should shoot for that. But anyway, or maybe it just wasn't that funny. But anyway, I thought my grandpa would say it. I thought it was hilarious. But the Gnostics are this group of false teachers. And what they did was they emphasized Jesus, Jesus's deity and they denied Jesus's humanity that what they believed is that all matter, whether it's a matter of this physical universe or, or, or even of the human body, it's, it's evil. Anything to do with the flesh, anything that you can see, smell, taste, touch, any of that kind of stuff that it's, it's evil in nature and only the, the divine is what's good. And so when they thought about a, G, a God who comes in the flesh, I mean, this is a group of people that would have said, hey, we're Christians and hey, we believe in Jesus, but we believe in a Jesus that is fully God, not fully man. They would have rejected the notion of God becoming flesh, God suffering, God dying. They would have said, no, that's not true. That could not have happened. That goes against uh, spiritual wisdom, they would have said. And so they denied Jesus's humanity and elevated to the point you know, of Jesus's deity. Fast forward to our day, which one do you think it is in our time? What do you think gets overemphasized and what gets denied in our age, an age of secularism? Probably what I would say is it's Jesus's divinity gets denied and Jesus's humanity gets elevated. I mean, we live in a time where most people would say, hey, we believe in a historical Jesus. We believe in a Jesus who was a good teacher. We believe in Jesus as a moral example, but we don't believe in a Jesus that is God. And yet what John's doing throughout his gospel is John is showing us Jesus in his divinity, fully God and Jesus in his humanity being a human. And we even see it here in the suffering, the crucifixion and the death of Jesus. Over the last few weeks here, We've emphasized Jesus's deity. We've emphasized his sovereignty as the king on the cross. He's controlling all things. Nothing is happening by accident. Every detail of his death uh, uh, is under Jesus's control. In fact, many of the details have been prophesied a 1,700 years even, you know, before Jesus's, uh, all of this is happening, before Jesus's birth. I mean, you can't go very many verses in, this gospel account, John 19, without John saying to fulfill scripture in accordance with scripture. And John is doing that in order to, to highlight that this is no ordinary man, but this is God. But what we see this week is John is now emphasizing Jesus' humanity, saying, don't think it, don't think that it's just some spirit hanging on a cross here but this is a man, a real human being with real human needs, with real human concerns. And we see that starting in verse number 25. The first one we see is a son's concern for his mother. Look at what it says in verse 25, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son, Then he said to the disciple, behold, your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home with the weight of sin on his shoulders, with all of the suffering that Jesus is going through and yet sympathy and concern toward his mom. There's only five followers there at the cross at the crucifixion of Jesus. Four women and one disciple, one apostle, John, the writer of this gospel. All the rest of them are in hiding. All the rest of them have left him and abandoned him. They're watching from afar. So the five that are there are John, the writer of this gospel. He refers to himself as uh, the, the disciple whom God, who Jesus loved. This is the second time in his gospel. He's referred to himself like that. I guess if you're writing your own New Testament gospel, you can refer to yourself however you want to. And so that's how he's referring to himself. He refers to himself in third person. I think it's also because he doesn't want to take the credit and uh, the glory for his gospel account, but that's how he refers to him. Second is Mary, the mother of Jesus. Third is another Mary. There's actually three Marys there. Mary, uh, Ma- I'm sorry, Mary's sister. It's not a Mary. Mary's sister, who would be Jesus's aunt, who's unnamed in this gospel account. Number four would be Mary, the wife of Clopas. And number five, Mary Magdalene the woman to whom Jesus cast out seven demons from. Undoubtedly, by this time, it appears that Jesus's earthly father, Joseph, has died. He's not shown up for some time right after the birth of Jesus in all of the gospels. You never hear of Joseph again. So maybe when Jesus was a young boy, prior to starting his uh, earthly ministry, Joseph has died. So now naturally, Jesus is concerned for his mother and he charges John to take care of his mother, to take care of Mary. Now, just as a side note, let me just say this. That in Roman Catholic tradition, um, Mary gets a ton of attention. Mary gets a ton of attention to the point to where she has the title of co-redemptress. That as if Jesus and Mary are working in cooperation to make salvation to us possible and let me just say that this that that is untrue and unbiblical that in fact here Mary will be mentioned one other time in the rest of the bible then in Acts, uh, Luke will record whenever they all meet in the upper room, Luke will record that Mary is included with those disciples. There's 120 in the upper room. We don't know all like who the 119 is, but Mary is in the room there. And then for the rest of the scriptures, Mary is silent. She is not mentioned in any single epistle. She is not mentioned in the book of Revelation. So again, a book that takes, deals with future events, that deals with heaven, and yet Mary is never mentioned in any of that. It seems rather obvious that she plays no role in redemption and salvation and even no role in intercession. It's taught within the Catholic church that you can pray to Mary. In my understanding, it's, to, it's understood that you can pray to Mary and that what can happen is if there's something that you really want and you really need, and it seems as if, if, if God the Father and God the Son are slow in delivering what you really want, what you really need, then you can go to the mother of Jesus and then the mother of Jesus can command Jesus or coerce Jesus or talk Jesus into giving you what you really want or you really need. Like my mom is in this room and maybe you could go to her and you could say, you know, Miss Karen, could you tell Andy to stop? You know, like my wife's never done that, but she could do that or you could do that, whatever it may be. Can you tell him to stop telling jokes that your dad told? They're terrible. Like you could try that, right? And she could come to me and maybe she could coerce me or talk me into that. And that's what they believe as Mary's role as an intercessor And let me just say this, that if that's your understanding of Jesus, you have a fundamental misunderstanding of prayer, of intercession, of sovereignty of Jesus and of Jesus. You don't understand Jesus' heart. Do you think Jesus needs to be coerced into giving you something that you need? Then you don't understand Jesus. That's your problem. It's not a misunderstanding about Mary. Well, it is, but it's not just that. Ultimately, it's a misunderstanding about Jesus that even though though Mary plays no role in our in salvation, she is still a widow who has now lost her firstborn son and she will need to be cared for. And Jesus, this man, this, this son, he turns to John and asks John and trusts John to take care of his own mother, Mary. John makes this comment in the text. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home It's John's way, I think, of saying, I did it. I did what Jesus asked me to do. I cared for her that quite possibly by the time that John is writing his gospel account, Mary too has died. And he's just saying in a in kind of a editorial comment or author's comment, he's saying, I did it. I fulfilled what Jesus asked. You see a human concern, a human sympathy, a son's sympathy toward his mother. And also you see a very human need. The very human need that Jesus has while on the cross is simply this, he's thirsty. He needs a drink. In verse 28, John says, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, he said, in order to fill the scriptures. One, it's in order to fill the scriptures. Like I said last week, the scriptures aren't just predicting the future, but they're describing the future in detail. They're saying Jesus is gonna hang on the cross. Jesus is going to get thirsty on the cross. In fact, Psalm 22 Will say that Jesus will. It will describe it like this: My tongue sticks sticks to my jaws. Have you ever been thirsty like that? My like, gosh, I get thirsty just thinking about it. I was thirsty before we got started. Like, what's the most thirsty you ever been? Jesus feels that kind of thirst. He's so thirsty that as the psalmist describes, his tongue sticks to his jaws. And there's a jar full of sour wine standing thereby. They put a sponge on the end of a stick, a hyssop branch, and they hold it up to Jesus' mouth and he takes a drink. But Jesus is a real human who gets thirsty with real human need. He's a person who gets parched on the cross now we think about the irony in that. That on the cross, the man who can give living waters gets thirsty. That Jesus, the all-satisfying fountain of living water, he makes himself parched on the cross. Verse 30 says, When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. Oh, what beautiful words. And he bows his head and he gives up his spirit. Now that's an important note there. Who's in control here? Jesus is in control. They don't take Jesus's life. He already said that. No one takes my life. I have authority to lay down my life. If I lay it down, I'm gonna pick it up again. And that's what Jesus does, that very thing. Jesus in complete control. Nothing is ever taken from Jesus. Jesus realizing that the work on the cross is finished, realizing that he has suffered all the wrath of God was to bring upon him, that Jesus had paid in full for all the sins of all who would believe in him, that no more payment was needed. Jesus willed himself to death. And then Jesus, the very life itself, the giver of all life, he dies on the cross. His final words are, it is finished. Now, I want to draw out um, kind of two observations from this text, just to take us a little bit of time, but I think we got time, but here we go. Number one, Because of the finished work, because of Jesus's finished work, you and I, we can rest in his work. Because Jesus says it is finished, Jesus declares it is finished. Because it is finished, you and I can now rest in his work. That what began in Genesis, the third chapter in a garden, what began with us, it's finished in John chapter 19 with Jesus on a cross that would began in disobedience, it ends, it is finished in obedience. And that's why we talk about the finished work of Jesus. That salvation is not something that you and I must do, but salvation is believing in what Christ has done. That You and I need to know that, we could kind of believe like, uh, some of our, um, Catholic friends can. Instead of Mary being the co-redeemer, you and I can see ourselves as co-redeemers, that you and I are somehow participating with Jesus in our own salvation, but you and I are co-nothing. It's all Jesus. Jesus is the Redeemer who is redeeming us to the Father. I want to draw your attention, uh, to, to just for a second, I want you to look with me in at one text of scripture, John chapter six, that as we close, as we're closing out the gospel of John, like, I keep looking back and thinking back about other sermons and other texts of scriptures. And I say like, hey, did we emphasize that? Did we hit that hard enough? Like, did we gather that? Did we glean all that we can from that? I mean, we still got another like, I don't know, maybe eight, nine, 10 10 sermons left in the Gospel of John, but we're in 19, it ends at 21. We can't go much longer, right? Surely not, can't go much longer. And one of those texts of scriptures this week was in John chapter six, that if you mark in your Bible, and you can mark in those few Bibles, if you mark in your Bible a text of scripture, this would be a fantastic text to mark in your Bible. But starting in verse number 27, John writes this, these are the words of Jesus, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the son of man will give to you. Do you see like what he's doing here? He's talking about work versus what is given to you. For on on him, God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do? That's work, that's doing. What must we do to be doing the works of God? Verse 29, and Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. That's key. The Christian life isn't about doing, but the Christian life is about believing. That all of the Christian life, all of it is about believing. It's about believing in the finished work of Christ, the accomplishment of Christ. That's what it means. That's what it entails. That, that what, what all it, the finished work of Christ means and what all... The finished work of Christ entails all of its declarations, all of its implications for our lives. We are constantly causing ourselves to believe in that. We're constantly rehearsing that beautiful truth over and over and over again in our lives. Now listen, I know a great many of you grew up in churches and in homes that emphasize rules over the gospel. I know this because my wife grew up in a church like that that emphasize rules, what you must do over what Christ has done. And because of that legalistic bent has led you into a new form of slavery. The declaration of the gospel is you've been freed from slavery of sin. And some of you get freed from the slavery of sin, but through the tradition of man and through just bad preaching and Brad teaching, you get roped into a new form of slavery, a legalistic slavery of of religion that tells you what you must do. And many of you daily, you feel the effects of that kind of slavery, feel the effects of it in the life that you live. Many of you live in a perpetual state of despair, thinking I can never do enough. Many of you, you live in a perpetual state of guilt, thinking I can never be good enough. Some of you, you live in a perpetual state of frustration, feeling like I can never do what is expected. Feel in a perpetual state of defeat, believing that you can never have assurance and nothing is any further from the truth, the gospel truth, that each of these that are on that screen, each of these run against the grain of the declarations of the gospel. And when Jesus said, it is finished despair and guilt and frustration and defeat for the christian is finished it is finished first we said because of the finished work that you and i we can now rest in jesus's work We can find our rest, our rest from religion, our rest from from performance, our rest from despair, from guilt, from frustration, from defeatism. We find all of that. We can rest from that because of what Jesus has done. Number two, because of Jesus' finished work, that he can remedy both our spiritual and our physical problems. that the same sort of like false emphasis that people, that false teachers can have either on Jesus's divinity or Jesus's humanity, it can translate even to us in the way that we think about the work of Christ. We can kind of have a, a false sense of false dualism as to as to how Jesus treats us or what Jesus remedies or what Jesus solves in our life. And we could think that Jesus only came to take care of our spiritual problems alone that all Jesus's death has accomplished, it has punched my ticket so that I'll miss hell and I'll hit heaven. But all that awaits me, all of the joys that awaits me isn't found in this life. It isn't found on a Monday morning or a Tuesday afternoon, but it's only found in heaven when we'll see Jesus face to face. And again, nothing can be any further from the truth. Jesus has declared about his own life. I've come to give you life and the abundance of life. He's not just talking about the longevity of life. He's not just talking about eternal life. Right there, what he's talking about is the the quality of your life. I've come to give you life and for you to experience life through Jesus's finished work. It has real practical relevance to our life. It has come, Jesus has come to set us free from Certainly, number one, he's come to set us free of our greatest problem, which is our sin. Jesus comes and makes full atonement. He completes, he brings a completed solution to the problem of our sin. But Jesus also, in doing that, Jesus remedies Many of our physical real life problems, problems like we talked about in the beginning, guilt and shame and hopelessness and despair and abandonment and not belonging and worry and bitterness and unforgiveness and pride and feelings of superiority. They all find their solution in the finished work of Christ. The greatest problem that we had was our sin, but because Jesus has taken care of that sin, a lot of these other issues that we deal with, they find the remedy in them. Imagine if you would, that you go to the doctor because you're sick and you sit down on the on the on on that white paper that wrinkles so bad. You know, you sit there on that and you're trying to sit so, so still so you don't wrinkle it all up. And the doctor comes in and says, hey, tell me what's wrong with you. And you say, doctor, here's what's going on. Say, I just feel awful. I've got a terrible headache. I've got a fever. I've got chills at night, right? I feel horrible. And my body aches, and the main thing is my throat. It's so sore, right? That's pretty good, isn't it? Sometimes I, I, I like to freak Pastor Brian out on Sunday mornings. and go, Brian, I can't talk. You're gonna have to preach. Nah, man, I'm just joking, and you tell the doctor all that, right? And then the doctor says, you know, let me look you over, and it looks you over and sticks the tongue depressor in, and looks down, you oh, it looks bad in there. I think you got strep throat, right? In fact, let's do this. Let's do a throat culture. The nurse comes in, takes that swab, and right, you all know it, and goes back out and checks that, comes back in. The doctor says, sure enough, tested positive, you got strep throat, and here's what I want you to do take some Tylenol for the aches, take some Tylenol for the fever, drink you some hot tea for your sore throat and good luck. Like you would go, hold on a minute, doc. Like the real issue, the real problem is I've got an infection, right? A bacterial infection called strep throat. Like you guys make something for that. It's called an antibiotic. Like don't just treat my symptoms, but what I need for you to do is I need for you to also Treat the thing, right, that's causing all the symptoms, which is the, the bacterial infection. Like, write me a check for the antibiotic. Listen, Jesus on the cross is remedying our greatest problem. The bacterial infection, the infection of your soul, which is sin. But because of the presence of sin, all of these symptoms show up in your life. All of the symptoms of the sin is all of the negative emotions that you and I deal with on a daily basis. Now, some of those are because of other people's sins, right? But many of us, even in knowing how to manage those, knowing how to how to understand those, we can even kind of navigate through those. But most of the negative emotions, what negative emotions are you talking about? Guilt and shame discouragement and despair, feelings of abandonment, feelings of pride that I constantly need to prove myself to others. Those sorts of negative emotions, low-grade frustration where you're always frustrated with the guy in front of you because he cut me off again, or this person that got the promotion, or all of those senses, all of those dealings that you and I deal with on a daily basis. The truth is they are symptoms. And what Jesus has come is to take care of the problem, to bring a remedy and to bring a cure. And as he brings that remedy, as he brings that cure through his finished atoning work on a cross, those symptoms as we believe that. The work of God is not in what we do, although we're called to do things, we're called to fight the fight of faith. We serve, we give, we do things, but the primary work of Christianity is not found in what you do, but it's found in what you believe. Life is found through belief and believing in Jesus, who he is and what he's done and all of those implications for those. And as we properly believe that, those sorts of things go away. In fact, let me show you what I'm talking about. Let's take guilt and shame because I think that's one that many of us deal with. Many of us, we deal with guilt and shame maybe from our past, maybe from our past sins, maybe from past experiences in our life. We deal with guilt and shame. Dan DeWitt, um, in uh, an article by the Gospel Coalition, Dan DeWitt says this about guilt and shame. He says, guilt and shame are twins born in the garden. It's talking about the Garden of Eden there as Adam disobeyed. They were born only moments apart, but they aren't identical twins. Guilt is usually tied to an event. I did something bad. Shame is tied to a person. I am bad. Guilt is the wound. Shame is the scar. Guilt is isolated to the individual. Shame is contagious. That when you violate God's law, you feel guilt. All of us have violated God's law. All of us should feel guilt. It's natural. It's a good thing. But what often happens is that emotion is quickly, nearly simultaneously joined by shame. That's the enemy's work. Guilt says you did something wrong. Shame says that's why you need to hide. You're no good. You deserve to live in darkness. Come with me. I'll lead the way. And how do you fight both the guilt of your sin and the enemy's work of shame? You fight it in the finished work. Christ. That the imagery of the sacrificial system has been throughout Jesus's life, but especially throughout Jesus's death and Jesus's suffering. The apostle Paul says the sacrificial system is like a shadow. It's like a shadow, but the substance, the real issue is the, the cross of Christ. That is light, if you would, shines on the cross of Christ, it casts a shadow. The Old Testament and sacrificial system is the shadow. The real substance of what is shining upon is upon the work of Christ. But some of us, because we don't spend a ton of time in the Old Testament, I mean, these truths make me want to preach more out of the Old Testament. That because we don't know our Old Testament real well, we don't understand the sacrificial system real well, some of us can miss what's happening on the cross. I mean, that makes me want to preach through the Old Testament next year. In fact, Pastor Derek, let's write it down. He may do it, right? Do a big chunk of it anyway. But what's happening here in the sacrificial system, there's so much occurring. Like for one, we can talk about the day of atonement. So this is one day on the calendar year when God's grace and God's mercy would be made much of. People's sin would be confessed. It'd be a beautiful picture. There's a lot of blood. It, is, it was a horrific picture. A lot of blood would be involved. But on the day of atonement, there would be two sacrificial goats. That's what they would use is two goats would be brought in. The first one would be symbolically uh, um, sacrificed. And then that blood would be drawn out. And then they would use that blood to sprinkle it on the altar, on the people. Like I said, it was a bloody affair. But that's the first one would be sacrificially slain. And Jesus is that sacrificial animal slain for us. He is the the, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of of the world, but the second goat. What would happen with that second goat is after the first goat had been sacrificed, then the other goat was symbolically loaded with the guilt <laughs> of Israel's sin, as the high priest and we talked about this. As the high priest would press his hands on the head of the goat, and he would confess the sins of the people upon that animal. It would be as if the goat would be weighed down with the judgment-worthy sins of the people. The judgment-worthy guilt of Israel would be on the head of that goat, and then guess what would happen to that goat? He would be released. He'd be driven out. He'd be driven eastward, far from the altar of God, God, far from the tabernacle of God, God far from the temple of God, from the presence of God. He'd be driven out into the wilderness. And that's a demonstration of what the psalmist said, that as far as the east is from the west, so does he remove our transgressions from us. And that goat, that goat too is Jesus. It's no accident that they press thorns, a crown of thorns upon Jesus's head. This isn't just a makeshift crown to belittle Jesus, but in Genesis, the third chapter, Whenever the curse is levied, a picture of the curses from the ground will rise up thorns and thistles. That the thorns make a picture of, of, of God's judgment, of God's curse that's falling upon Jesus. It includes our ju- God's judgment for our sins are pressed upon Jesus's head. And through the finished work of Christ, Christ has taken on our punishment and he has driven out our sins. It's the theological word expiation. It refers to the cleansing of sin and the removal of sin's guilt, that our guilt is taken away from us. It's carried away. Just as the psalmist writes, as far as the East is from the West, God drives out the thing that is causing us guilt, the thing that the enemy is using to bring shame upon us. It has been taken away from us. Guilt and shame is driven from us, and what we receive in its place is forgiveness and favor. Now, don't lose that. Put forgiveness and favor together. The problem is you and I think God forgives like like we forgive. We think forgiveness, God forgives like we forgive. Like my wife taught our, our children to say, like whenever you harm the other one or you do something to hurt them, that this is what the, you're just say. When you come and say, I'm sorry, the other one is to say, uh, I, it's not okay, but I forgive you, right? And usually in my household, we say it like this, it's not okay, but I forgive you, right? With a furrowed brow, right? With no real sense of forgiveness in our heart, but yet it's like, you're told to, you know, mom's standing right there. You better say it, say it. Okay. He said he was sorry. Now you need to say it. Okay. I, you know, and there's still like, like a a grudge in their heart. But here's the truth of the gospel. God holds no grudge for us. God never says, I forgive you with a furrowed brow. And how do I know that? Well, not only can we talk about expiation, but there's a side thought in expiation and it's the thought of propitiation. I'm just throwing these out to show you that I went to Bible college. Although, you know, I, I did and it was hard work and my folks paid for it. My wife and we worked and we did and we'd go to pay for it. I'm not just saying that because, but this is helpful truths in Scripture. As you read the Bible in the New Testament, you're gonna run across this word, propitiation. You're gonna be like, hey, what does that mean? Well, let me tell you what that means. Expiation refers to taking something away. Propitiation is this, it's the assuaging, the satisfaction of God's just wrath for our sin and the gaining of his favor. The picture that I say is a picture of a lightning rod, that the cross of Christ is a lightning rod where all of God's wrath, and why is God wrathful? Why is he angry? Well, it's because you've sinned. It's because I've sinned. All of our sin for God to be just has to evoke a, a sense of justice in that and a sense of wrath for that. And all of God's wrath is being, listen, poured out on Christ on the cross. That's why I can say God holds no grudges, not just because God forgives and he forgets. No, because there's a real transaction taking place. All of God's just wrath he has for your sin is being poured out on his son, Jesus Christ on the cross. If something is poured out, right? If I pour out all of this water from this water bottle, there's none left in the water bottle. If I pour it out and all of God's feelings of anger towards you, those of you who believe in Jesus have been poured out. That when you come to Jesus and confess sin to Jesus, the father holds no grudges towards you. He doesn't reluctantly say, I forgive you, but because of Christ, he gives you his favor. All of his just wrath and anger has been poured out and now what you receive is favor. In fact, another word that we could use is the word reconciliation. Paul uses that in Romans 5. Matt read earlier Romans 5. I could listen to Matt read scripture all day. Matt read earlier Romans 5 for us. And Romans 5 begins with, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we now have peace. Listen to that. Because of Christ's work on the cross and your faith in his finished atoning work, you now have peace with God. Do you feel that? You're now at peace. You don't have to strive. You don't have to run. You don't have to do. You don't have to win. You don't have to earn. Peace. Atonement. That's what atonement. At one. You're made one with him now. You don't have to strive for that and work for that. You have that. And how do you get that? You get that through faith in Jesus. Looking upon the beauty of what Christ has done for you. And as you behold that, it transforms you. As you see that, it changes you. Since we've been justified by our faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's Jesus who brings that. Paul goes on to say there in Romans 5, it's a grace in which we now stand. It's a firm foundation that Jesus has accomplished in which you stand in it. You stand upon it. It's beautiful. You've been reconciled to God. You have brought peace. You've been redeemed. A price has been paid. A ransom has been paid. You've been set free from Satan and from sin. Former slaves now become children of God. You've been adopted into his family. You receive a new family and a new identity a new belonging, a new hope and new destination. That is the good news. That it undermines all of our guilt. And it undermines all of our shame. It undermines all of our despair and all of our sense of hope. We now have a hope and our hope is the glory of God. We have a hope and we rejoice in it, Paul says in Romans 5. We no longer feel abandoned because we're included in his family. We no longer have to feel bitter. We no longer have to feel fearful, all because of what Jesus has done, all because Jesus' declaration is, it is finished. The resurrection of Jesus is assumed. When he dies, it's assumed. After Jesus' resurrection, Jesus will spend 40 days on this earth with his disciples, and then Jesus will ascend into the heavens, and whenever he reaches the heavens, guess what he does? He sits down. Why does he sit down? Well, what do you do after a long, hard day of work? What do you do after you've accomplished the thing that you've set out to do? I love to, well, I don't love to, but I work it reluctantly, mow the grass and work in the yard and do those sorts of things, right? There's a joy ache there, and then when it's all finished, you look back on your work, and then you Go in the house and you sit down. That's what Jesus does. He sits down on a throne because he's the sovereign king. He's reigning and ruling, but he sits down because he has accomplished it. He's accomplished your salvation. And your salvation isn't just about you missing hell and hitting heaven. Your salvation is about the life that you live tomorrow, today and tomorrow and the rest of your life. Or that we would see Jesus as a beautiful savior. Oh, that we would see Jesus as the one who has the power to save us unto the utmost. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your work that you've done for us on our behalf on the cross. Thank you, Father, that you loved us so much that you would send your son to the cross. You loved us so much that you gave your one and only son on the cross so that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but would have everlasting life. And we just thank you for the everlasting life that you've given us that starts at the moment of our confession and our faith that we place in you. We're not just waiting to die to begin everlasting life, but everlasting life is accomplished here. And Lord, I pray for souls like my own soul, hearts like my own heart, minds like my own mind that struggle still with feelings of guilt and shame and abandonment and despair and, worry and frustration, Lord. It seems as if it's normal, it's normal to experience those things. And yet may the truth of your finished work be, may it be a clarifying truth that brings clarity to those emotions, Lord. It brings a remedy to them, Lord, as we trust and we believe in what you have accomplished for us. Lord, I pray for folks in this room that struggle with chronic ailments like myself in those areas, Lord. Oh, for faith. Oh, for grace to trust you more. Give us grace to trust you more, Lord. Jesus, as we come and as we take a piece of bread that represents your body that's broken, as we take a cup that represents your blood that has been shed, may we know and may we trust that it is finished. It is finished. We are the redeemed Children of God, may we trust in you. May we worship you even with all of our lives because of that. May we live as your children, enjoying you, enjoying the peace that we have in you, enjoying the reconciliation that you've given us, enjoying our adoption. May we just rejoice in you. It's in your great name that we pray. Amen.